0: Welcome to the Retro 21 Studios Podcast. I'm your host, M Squared. Please support the podcast by clicking on the like and subscribe buttons on our various podcast channels, such as Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify.
1: Not saying power but i'm saying words that tend to go along with power and all mm-hmm. the written material out there and so because of that correlation in its training data chat gpt goes oh he's asking a power question mm-hmm. and then it gives me the power question answer, which is great so long as all the training data is completely representative and universal of all the current and potential possibilities that are out there but it ain't and that's it where bias comes in
0: that's right Eric, are there any particular tools that you lean more towards just based on level of accuracy that actually helps you get your work done?
1: So when I use large language models to do my work, I tend to not ask it intellectual questions. Mm-hmm. I tend to ask it to give me the average solution to a problem that's been solved a thousand times before that I don't want to figure out again. Mm-hmm. Which is why these large language models are excellent at helping you write computer code. Wow. And it makes sense, too, because not only is human language not that hard, computer language is even easier, right? These sort of computer coding languages were written in such a way so that it's a bag of words that are put together in such a way that a computer can read. It's mm-hmm. already been thought of a way to make it easier for a computer to read it and understand right. it. <laughs> and if I need to figure out how to do something in R, like I want to make a scatter plot of predicted values, and I want to put margin of error bars on it. I don't know that off the top of my head. I'm an old man now. And a couple of years ago I would just suffer through and spend about three hours just making mistake after mistake and just finally getting it right, maybe. Now what I do is I say five minutes, go to ChatGPT. I don't give it any real data, but I just say I need to make a scatter plot of say why based on categories of x and i know Mm -hmm. the standard error for each point of y what's the code for that (laughs) boom done paste change the vague variables with what i actually need and what used to be four hours is five minutes is it plagiarism no but is it giving credit where credit is due probably not because it's just averaging what's out there it's not Mm -hmm. thinking it through but it looks Uh, like it is.
0: This is an interesting area, right? From an ethics perspective, I think there's some cases in court right now. I don't know if they've been settled and it's along those very lines as far as, Hey, that's my work. It feels very familiar to me. You guys stole it. That sort of thing.
1: Oh, I'm not getting my new star Wars because the writers were on strike and the actors are still on strike over this stuff because my video games are pretty good. And so if I'm an actor and they scan me and they scan my voice and make me say a bunch of stuff, I don't need me anymore. And so mm-hmm. I think it's not random that the writer's strike got settled, but they're still waiting the actors out.
0: So let's look at that in the world of statistics and where AI is going, right? That's the other big conversation, the replacement exercise, right? <laughs> we don't need you anymore. Yeah, What's happening think- in statistics?
1: I think right now what's happening is there are people who solve new problems. There is no formula for the optimal whatever on how to figure this out and design. And that's why I wrote a paper and got published because one wasn't out there. And it it wasn't really hard to do. Just nobody had done it before. Uh, But I had to stop and think things through a little bit. I think that kind of work is going to be untouched and will still require humans to come up with new things because that's what we're really good at. Mm-hmm. We're really good at taking very disparate inputs and patterns we've seen and putting them together to create something new, right? Mm-hmm. That's like the definition of creativity. Right. AI is not creative. AI is an averager. Mm-hmm. And so AI will take a problem that's been solved 10 times and give you the average solution to it. But it, it's not quite there to create it can find patterns better and faster than humans can with more data, but it doesn't know what those patterns mean. Mm -hmm. And so solving problems, creating new solutions, thinking about the ethics of the thing, I don't think AI is there yet. Once enough people do that, then AI can tell you what the average of those results were. Mm -hmm. But one thing that AI I think is gonna cut into is the sort of manual task of taking a data set and writing SAS or Stata or SPSS or R or Python. I think I named everyone and didn't tick anyone off. Writing that code. Right. But the problem is, even in my own career, I've found I keep writing the same program over and over again. Right, it's redundant. You know? mm-hmm. And what I tell my junior colleagues is, if you're bored and doing repetitive things and not thinking about it, yeah, your job's at stake. If you're getting carpal tunnel, yeah, your job's at stake. But if you're regularly engaged and you're regularly stumped and you're trying to figure out and solve new things, and if you ask a question of what's the solution to this and nobody knows, you're fine. Mm-hmm. And so what I think AI is going to be just like a lot of the other ones is it's going to be not necessarily a change to the content, change to the creativity, but it's definitely another change to the media.
0: hmm
1: And in some ways, I think it's wonderful that it's a change. It's a similar change to the media that like Final Cut Pro and being able to make movies and edit them and create movies on a much, much lower budget. Mm -hmm. That's writing and asking statistical questions and writing computer code, I think, is really going to be opening up to people who don't want to learn a language. They know what they want. They can ask the computer what they want. And the computer is going to get better and better at actually doing the right thing.
0: You remind me of the whole deal around prompt engineering, which is a brand new field of study.
1: It's interesting because I've seen similar things in other analytic and statistical areas. So let's Mm -hmm. take teachers and the whole value-added thing. Essentially, a predictive model was run with the kids and the teachers and schools and all sorts of controls. And more or less, and I'm vastly oversimplifying this, but more or less each teacher got a number assigned to them, which was like a residual. And a positive number meant, boy, your kids are doing better than we predicted they would do based on everything. You get a raise. And the teachers would get a negative number sometimes. Oh, you're not, right. your kids aren't doing as well as they should be doing based on everything else we know about them. We're going to put you on probation. And we're not going to give you a raise. And we might even fire you. That's high stakes. That's scary. And that's really awful. Teachers quickly figured out not by looking at the manuals, not by looking at the code. They just group mind quickly figured out the major mechanisms that let their scores go up and down, Mm -hmm. and they vastly changed the way they teach. Similar things in criminology. Police officers' data sets and all that stuff are being run to judge cops on the quality of the job that they're doing. And it's not a holistic measure of the quality. But boy, that's a profession that quickly figured out how these numbers are being run, not directly, but intuitively, and started changing their behavior accordingly. So prompt engineering is the next version of a long tradition of human beings intuiting how technology works and Mm -hmm. figuring out ways to exploit it for good or bad reasons. And so Mm -hmm. I think this is just another chapter in a really long, old book.
0: Eric, I appreciate your insights and perspectives. You have a book out, Introduction to Power Analysis, Green Book, it's on Amazon. I'm looking at it right now on the side here. Tell us about your book.
1: So the origin of the book was, I was an assistant professor for a couple of minutes. And before I was an assistant professor, I worked in the industry where I work again now which is a lot of sort of people come to me with problems and I try to solve them and do all that kind of stuff. And then I'm a professor all of a sudden, which was great, except nobody was bringing me their problems. And to keep your job as a professor, you got to publish books and articles and stuff. And so I quickly figured out, oh, my God, what do I know about that there isn't a book about yet? And while there's a lot of like really big books on power analysis – My personal favorite series of books as a social quantitative methodologist is the sage little green book series. It's like these sort of little hundred page books on one-off topics. And they didn't have one on power. And desperate to add to my CV, I just cold called them and I said, hey, I know about power. And I knew actually less than I connoted at the time, got the contract and wrote the book. But in writing the book, I wanted to learn more about power analysis. (laughs) And then I also wanted to write a stat book in a way that I would want to read it. The book is about power. So what is power? Statistical power is basically a lot of times we take two groups and we compare them and we get this p-value. And we want that p-value to be small because basically it's saying if we assume there's no impact, what's the probability of seeing what we saw in our data or a difference that's bigger, right? That's ultimately what the p-value is. Mm -hmm. And that's why it drives everyone nuts because it's this triple negative axle thing that you got to wrap your mind around. We assume there's nothing. So what's the chance that we saw what we did see, assuming there's nothing. And if that chance is really small, then maybe we can just reject this idea that there's nothing going on. It's it's this crazy thing. And... It basically is a combination of how much data do you have, how much variation is in that data, and your other design choices. That goes into the soup. And basically what power analysis is, basically trying to say, what are the chances that this thing's going to work, assuming we have an impact? At the end of the penultimate Avengers movie, there's this scene where Doctor Strange kind of sits down and he gets all fuzzy and he's like looking through all the different multiverses and futures and comes back and he's i've looked at 10 million different realities and we only won in one of them basically he was doing a power analysis for the adventures mm-hmm. where it says we don't know what the pe- peculiarities of our sample are going to be but we can say on average it'll be this so we'll draw another curve around that and if enough of that curve is Past that statistical test threshold, we're going to feel pretty good. We'll come out with a statistically significant result. And so, the book I wrote was basically how to do that in simple to a more complex situation.
0: I will definitely uh, pick it up. Is there a particular demographic? Is it something that a college student can pick up, high school student can pick up? And
1: I don't know. I don't know of a lot of high school students who are doing randomized trials. (laughs) But if they are, it might behoove them to take a look at it or another sure. power book. I don't want to say mine's the best one, but I would say it's graduate students in fields that conduct experiments, because if you're not doing an experiment or if you're not like doing a really well-matched sort of quasi experiment, this book is really of no use to you because right. to do a power analysis, say for a predictive analysis,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you need to know how all the variables relate. If you know Absolutely. how all the variables relate, then you don't need to do the next study. It's really about these sort of A B tests that, as they're dubbed in in data science, and how can you make choices, and what can you do to make sure you have enough data to have a good chance of getting the effect you think you're going to get. The actual the chapters in there that I'm most proud of really don't have any formulas in them at all. Actually, it's one about how to write about your power analysis. Mm -hmm. because when you're applying for grants or trying to win a contract, sometimes you have to write, and you usually only have about two paragraphs of space, why you think you have a chance at actually finding the thing. And so I have a chapter on what you need to include in that. That's a chapter I like. And then the other one is trying to figure out what your assumptions are, because Mm
0: -hmm.
1: unless you're doing stuff that's been done before, which I think we should do more of, but it's not a thing to do a lot these days, although that's increasing, you probably Mm -hmm. have no idea what's going to happen. So that other chapter goes through, what can you find in the literature to try to piece together a plausible guess? And so those are the two chapters that I think are out of the whole book, which is a bunch of formulas you can get anywhere else. I think those two chapters are actually the sort of intellectual contribution. So
0: Awesome. I will definitely uh, pick it up. I have a heavy interest in, in this area. Matter of fact, you mentioned Python earlier, and yeah. I'm knee-deep in Python right now. I'm torturing myself with this data engineering course. It's, it's awesome.
1: I, I love Python. I'm an R nerd myself, but hey, open source. I like open source and I think it's important to know how a computer thinks. That's right. And you you run into all sorts of weird things where, you know, if you're dealing with really small decimal places, you realize that computers are really terrible with precision. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you do? And that kind of stuff. So yeah, I love that stuff. And I think it's important. And I think power is important because what happens is we live in a world in which if you don't get that significant Mm -hmm. star, it's going to be a lot harder to get published. And so... What happens is people who have these really sort of small studies with not a lot of folks, you do enough of them, you're going to win the lotto. Alpha 0.05 means when there's nothing there, 20% of the stuff is going to show up as significant. So wow. all you got to do is do 20 random studies. And I guarantee you, I'm not going to guarantee you, but I'm pretty sure, I put money on it, that one of them's going to come out with a significant result. And so what happens is you got these lotto winners who get published that don't get replicated. And that study's been done. That's the whole replication crisis, hmm. which means a lot of people, where there is an impact, if their study's not big enough, they don't pick it up, and so they don't get published. So no one hears about it. And so that's why power analysis is really important. It's about keeping the shelf space for the real stuff and not the BS stuff. Awesome. I'd
0: love for you to join in the near future.
1: Yeah, I, I'd love to. This stuff is really fun for me. So thank you. Thanks for
0: the excellent. Thanks for chance. Well, thanks for your time, and have a great, great rest of your
1: day. Thanks you too.